are huge believers in the scale that technology brings and service every loan that we originate. It's a more complex financing structure, right? Needed technology to give us scale. Well, Kurt, so super excited to have you join me for this episode of Coffee with Closers. Uh, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Most certainly, Kurt, you decided to go into private lending business in the middle of a really a crazy downturn in the economy in 2008. When everybody was running away from real estate, you actually decided to go lend money to build more houses when people couldn't, people were running away from their mortgage. Right. What was going through your mind when you decided to start Builders Capital almost 15 years ago? Yeah, so, you know, I spent the first 18 years of my career in the traditional mortgage banking business, mostly with bank-owned mortgage companies. The last seven or eight years of that portion of my career, I was with a large publicly traded regional bank that had construction portfolio and a multifamily portfolio offering nationally. And so that during that time got very close to what was going on in the home building sector not only from the permanent mortgage takeout, consumers buying the product, but also how banks viewed lending into that space. By my estimation, circa 2005, six, seven, about 70% of the liquidity that came into the home builder finance space was from the too big to fail banks. And so quite honestly, when the global financial crisis started and banks inclusive of our bank began to pull back from the space. My basic thesis was there's just no way this can happen and then be sustained. There is either going to be a retrenchment three to five years out as those big banks, this storm blows over and those big banks come back. So maybe there's an opportunity to build up a really strong network of core customers that then one of those banks may just have to have three to five years later or maybe there's an opportunity to participate in what becomes kind of a whole new sector of finance outside of the traditional bank. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, I was young enough, maybe naive enough at the time to believe, you know, we could go do that. And then in the words of Warren Buffett, when everybody's running away from something might be the right time to look at it. Mm -hmm. So obviously, fast forward 15 years later, you've already originated over $8 billion. You have an aspirational goal to go $10 billion and sometime in the distant future to 20 and, and keep going at it, right? And we're also at a time in history where the interest rate is, is kind of, I wouldn't say is record high, but certainly higher than what it was, you know, two years ago. All of that is happening. How much of your current success and where is Builders Capital today was part of your, how you visualize the future would be when you started this 13, 15 years ago? Yeah, so I would, I would love to tell you that when I sat in January of 2009 and kind of took this leap of faith that I ever envisioned that we would be 15 years into the future. And to be clear on our volume, I think history to date, we've done somewhere in the neighborhood of nine to $10 billion of finance. We, we should do 4 billion this year. And we have aspirations, kind of next big milestone in my mind is $10 billion a year in annual volume that that will take us most likely a couple years to get there we always plan a few years out in front so i've been you know 24 probably our 26 maybe 25 business plan will be in that range but back to your question because you it was difficult to predict what would happen during those 15 years it was therefore hard to imagine that we would be here because lots of things ended up falling into place the beautiful thing about you know, owning a business in this nation 
where we're free to explore and risk and take chances is that once something starts to take hold and build scale, big scale capital follows, Wall Street capital follows. And that is precisely what has happened to the kind of private lending industry as a whole. What makes Builders Capital unique is we are the only one that at least we're aware of mm -hmm. that has been exclusively focused on home builder finance. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, again, I would be, you know, being dishonest to, to say that had clear visibility 15 years ago that we would be here today because, because I did not. That clarity though really started to take shape circa 2016, 17 for us. And it was at that point coming into 2018 that we made really three big decisions that have led to kind of where we are today. With one being to just scale the platform nationally. Would you explain a little bit more about what are some of those key decisions you made that helped you succeed and scale better? Yeah. So, you know, again, you have to kind of go back to the history and prior to 2009. So my view of the lending landscape nationally is that in all things kind of commercial real estate, and even though we are, our customers are predominantly building single family, we're a business to business loan. So it's commercial in nature, right? Mm -hmm. Again, I would estimate and estimated at the time, 70 to 75% of that business went to the too big to fail banks. The rest of the market was mostly financed by regional banks and credit unions. You had a very small, disparate, disconnected network of private lenders nationally. So locally, you know, really, really well-run groups like Seattle Funding Group. They've been a private lender, gosh, probably going back 20 plus years, smaller in context to builders capital. But you had a network of those all across the country. Mm -hmm. And the reason that they were disparate and disconnected was there's no institutional base of finance, right? So if you wanted to have, and this was the same for Builders Capital when we started, if you are a non-depository, your choices back then were to go do alternative investment, right? So you could syndicate individual loans, find a transaction, match it with investors, or you could go create a fund. Right. There's SEC regulation around creating what's often referred to as a private placement memorandum or an alternative investment. And then you need to go one investor at a time and aggregate capital. Now, that's a way to do it. That's the way that we did it from really circa 2011 to 2017. But it is very difficult to scale. You really end up with a business inside of the business, which is your capital function. So we realized in 2017, we had five active private placements in the market. We probably had roughly 300 accredited investors and we had 11 bank facilities that provided some underlying financing to those funds. And all of that got us to about 350 million a year in financing where we saw a multi-billion dollar opportunity. Right. So we made the decision. And in the meantime, Wall Street had started to get interested in the private finance business, not necessarily for construction loans, but you'll hear terms like fix and flip loans, residential transition loans tends to be a simpler product in the eyes of Wall Street, a more secure product, although we would disagree in the eyes of Wall Street and, and Wall Street money started to come into that space. And so we piggybacked on that kind of evolution. And in late 2018, early 2019, 
made the decision to do really three things. Begin to demonstrate that we could originate loans outside of our core operation, which is here in Puget Sound, across the nation. We had already expanded into, at that point, Oregon, Colorado. We made a push into Idaho and into Texas, and actually a little bit of Florida at that time as well. So that was key number one. We need to demonstrate to our investors and to capital that we can run this business from a central location and responsibly originate construction loans. Number two, we made, we doubled down our investment in technology. We are huge believers in the scale that technology brings. And we are also a core tenant to the business is that we service every loan that we originate. Well, to be able to service every loan that you originate and when they're construction loans, meaning you close the loan and now you fund into the construction, it's the more complex, it's a more complex financing structure, right? You've got to monitor it along the way. You got to monitor all the payments. It's heavy, heavy servicing. We needed technology to give us scale. So we made a multi-million, which has now become well over $10 million investment in owning our entire tech stack from origination all the way through payoff or even workout, if that's the route that it goes. And the third thing that we made a decision is we had to roll over our capital structure to an institutional capital structure in the midst of what was just forming up to be a marketplace for lenders like us to access capital on Wall Street. So we made the first transition really January 1, 2019. We consolidated all of our five private placements into a single investment vehicle. We retained probably 60% of our investors. We went from 11 bank lines to a single bank line. And then we brought on a, what I'll call kind of a quasi institutional capital partner in what the industry calls an aggregator. And so that became our capital table. That took us from about 350 million to $500 million a year in finance. And within a matter of months of closing on that transaction, we were already thinking about what the next evolution was. And the next evolution was ultimately getting into what's referred to as the private securitization market, as well as gaining some financing from what are predominantly now hedge fund owned life insurance companies. Life insurance money for a business like ours is really well matched. They need duration, meaning they would like to put the money to work and have it be in place for multiple years. They like single family, the single family space. They're okay with the commercial aspect, meaning we're making loans to a business. And so we began to explore that with a key partner. And in October of 20, now we had a global pandemic come up in the meantime, this probably would have happened a little sooner were it not for that. But by late 2020, we had closed on our first major LifeCo facility, 500 million. Then we came into early 21, closed on our first, the first ever construction loan private securitization with the help of many partners, by the way, closed on another upsize to our LifeCo facility in October of 21. And have since closed, I think five securitization rounds, as well as one or two additional LifeCo and or what I'll call asset manager capital. And what that has allowed us to do, we went from, again, 20, 20 was kind of an odd year. I don't even remember what volume we did because of COVID, but we've now scaled the business to in 2021, did 2 billion. We did 3 billion last year, and we, we will finish the year somewhere around $4 billion this year. Would venture to guess we'll have a business plan as we come into 2024 
in the five plus billion dollar range. So obviously you started in the thick of a downturn. You now we're kind of in a slow pace in the economy currently, and nobody predicted the, the pandemic, but you made a lot of strategic moves to, in between that time to get to where right. you are. Can you share some of the setbacks that you didn't anticipate uh, that you faced and also yeah. what were kind of the, the action items that you took to, to overcome those? Yeah, something that I'm super proud of for our organization and keep in mind, I have two extraordinary business partners. We've got another 115 people in the organization and none of this is possible without all of them. I just get the honor, you know, of talking about it and kind of <laughs> participating with it. But, but probably the first big shock again, so keep in mind going back, we've made this big move in 19. We've rolled over our capital structure. We're getting comfortable with what it's like to have, again, kind of a quasi institutional partner. We begin to lay the bricks in the road for, okay, now we got to go to, we got to make the next transition. And we actually come into January of 2020 with a billion dollar term sheet signed. One of my partners and I have been to Israel. We had a major investor there at the time. We have secured, I think, a, an additional commitment for another $50 million of equity. And we land uh, here on the ground, you know, late January and what, three, four weeks later, maybe six weeks later, mid-March, we're in a global pandemic. We immediately lose our term sheet from our LifeCo facility, understandably. Our kind of quasi-institutional partner is starting to get very nervous with what's going on in the marketplace. And so we, funding begins to be very restricted from them. And yet we have a portfolio at that time. I don't remember what it is. It was four, it's four and a half billion today. It was probably 750 million. We have existing customers that we need to continue to take care of because they've got draws. Their construction is not stopping other than Washington actually, which, which shut down the construction industry temporarily. So what we did is what we've always tried to do. One of my business partners, Robert Hadley has a saying, that I love, which is never ride the too high of the wave and never let the, the bottom of the trough get you too low, right? Most business problems can be solved. They can be really hard. That was a very scary moment. Again, that, that I, at least I will profess that I had sleepless nights wondering, you gotta be kidding me after 12 years or whatever it was, a global pandemic is gonna be the thing that causes us to crash and burn. But what we did is we, we made good business decisions. So we gathered all our people together. We immediately had to pull back in the marketplace because capital sources were drying up, which for the most part affected everyone. And we used that next about four or five months to really do all the things that you don't do when you're trying to close four or $500 million a month. When our operation is really humming, everybody it, we're a fairly lean operation by design we are really cranking right and we're working on new business we're taking care of customers while we do certainly have support people like in technology that are always working on technology the business end of the business is really focused on new originations and existing customers so during that time we weren't so much we obviously were focused on existing customers taking care of them calming nerves, making sure we're making the right investments and they're making the right investments, uh, which was its own, you know, kind of stress. But we hunkered down on all the things that we didn't do. Writing policy, updating policy, doubling our time in our technology, rethinking about when we come out the backside of this, 
if if we knew going into a season, hey, we don't have to be ready for that for three or four months. We didn't know what the time frame was. Is there anything that we would do different? And so we used that time with some really strategic planning that frankly proved to benefit us massively. I wouldn't necessarily want to go through the first 30, 45 days of COVID again. But once we begin to realize that, hey, you know what, actually on the single family and even multifamily front, for the most part, the nation continues to do really, really well. There's constraint and disruption because of COVID, but actually sales are starting to really ramp up, oddly enough. And so we, we knew probably 60, 90 days in this too shall pass, but I'm really proud of the team as to how we use the time. We kept in front of our capital partners. I mentioned earlier that we lost our billion dollar commitment at the end of, I think it was February 2020. By June, we were back under LOI. I like to joke for half the amount at twice the price, but nonetheless, we were under for 500 million instead of a billion. And we subsequently closed that transaction in October. And by the time we hit October, we were already kind of into a sprint. You know, we knew it was, we had confidence it was going to close. We had some of our own balance sheet capital that we could use to kind of seed originations. We slowly started originating again in August. And by the time that closed mid-October 2020, we were in full stride, which again led to then our biggest year by a, by a factor of four in 2021 with respect to volume. Obviously, like you said, right? No one wants to repeat the, the pandemic again. Nobody, nobody even anticipated it would ever happen, but you've made some really strategic moves. What are some lessons that you take away from there that's almost applicable irregardless of whether it's a pandemic or some other external factors that might affect your business's ability to operate? Yeah, I would say two things are really, really important. Number one, and again, I think I think that we do really, really well and in large part, I would attribute to my other business partner, whose name is also Robert, goes by Rob, Rob Trent, making sure the organization always is really clear on what our priorities are and what our plan is, right? So we are pretty good and pretty measured about when we know we're in a growth phase, which we are in right now, we are hiring positions today that will really impact the organization 90 days from now. Right, so we, we have a plan and as long as we are on plan from a volume and a revenue perspective, we execute the plan as if it's gonna follow through. When you have a shock to your system like that with COVID, you kind of have to do the reverse, right? You need to know what the inverse of that looks like. So, hey, we've made these decisions, we've now had this, and that came on pretty fast, if you recall. I mean, it seemed like it was two weeks from, what the heck is this, where did it start to? They're sending everybody home, yeah. right? And so we had to, and, and look, there are some painful processes in that. There are some painful decisions in that. We, we initially, uh, you know, rally everybody together. Here's what we're dealing with. Keep in mind, you've got an organization that part of is fully based on almost exclusively commission earnings. Now we have shuttered, we're, we're, we're stockpiling capital to make sure we can survive. So how do you address those folks? and dealing, making sure they understand the plan, making sure they're dealt with honestly and transparently with some as much notice as we can give them, and then marshal the resources to work on the things that you can work on. I've, I've been in other organizations in my past and probably even as an early leader, you know, going back 25 
years ago where the fear or the disruption of what's happened paralyzes you, right? You cannot do that. You have to take action. And I think we did it. With, so the lesson I would learn is number one, you have to stay engaged in the game. No matter what the fog of war is creating in terms of confusion, there is a plan and just waiting to see what happens to you next is not a plan. Formulate a plan. It won't be perfect. Begin to execute and be open to pivoting as things change it. That's number one. Number two is you always have to protect the host, right? Uh, my wife hears me say this all time, all the time and probably hates this quote, which is the business eats first, right? Mm -hmm. Without a business, without a profitable, capitalized, um, organized, thoughtful platform, nothing else, you know, matters. Our good intentions, you know, don't matter. So you have to make the hard decisions and, and at times you have to make them without perfect information. And then you have to just go with that, right? Treat people with dignity and respect, give them as much notice as you can, because we did, you know, we've had a couple of times in the history of the organization where we've had to lay off a portion of our staff. Now, in some cases, we've been able to bring that staff back, but that is the nature of the industry, you know, that we're in, which tends to ride these waves. Unfortunately, COVID created a little bit of a tsunami, then was fine, but we faced this again this time last year, right? We had unprecedented rate hikes to get inflation under control based on bad former Fed policy, in my humble opinion, and the marketplace paid the price, you know, from really, end of Q1 2022 to really end of year 2022, obviously heavy, heavy disruption as a result of unprecedented rate hikes that we haven't seen since the Volcker days. And that, that takes its toll in real estate as much as anywhere, right? Cause you shock buyers out of the system that think they're going to get three. And now they're looking at six and a half or seven, the capital markets shut down. And so now on the private side of the landscape, which is a massive industry now, billions and billions of dollars, which is unlike pre 2009. And so the whole merry-go-round, you know, kind of slows down or stops. We have to adjust to that, right? As a business. And so anyway, you know, the climate has changed a little bit as we've come into 2023, but th those are probably the two most notable. And, and once again, we, we reacted very similar to we did in COVID. We slowed down originations, which frankly, that sort of took care of itself as well, because builder developers this time last year, at least, were pretty sheepish about getting more starts on the ground. So naturally it slowed down. We had to adjust pricing as interest rates were going up. Our interest rates, of course, were going up. That also served to slow down originations. But we used the time really, really well from probably, you know, certainly end of Q3 through Q4 to really hone in and focus on our business. We'll probably talk about this. We had made a technology investment at the end of 2021. And so guess what? We spent an inordinate amount of time in late Q3, Q4. Frankly, it continues today, but specifically Q1, really honing in on pouring more resources into that technology. Mm -hmm. So obviously, you know, you've definitely started the business in, in during a hard time. You've weathered the storm multiple times, right? External factors that are completely outside of your control. And you certainly had a very 
positive outlook on how things would turn out because you're you're a guy who's extremely optimistic about the world and clearly that reflected in how you acted in 2008 or 9 when you started this company but there's probably a lot of people who watch it right they have ideas they have aspirations to go start something but they're always looking external factors and saying like oh this isn't the time i'm going to wait around until everything gets better what advice would you give someone who's listening today in terms of how do you in the uncertain times that we're in how do you still take action on whatever vision that they have they may have for a business or a product idea yeah great question and i love these conversations when they come up from time to time and actually have one of my own children in this phase a little bit you know right now and look depending on the industry i don't want to suggest which my comments could be misunderstood that timing doesn't matter right i mean in hindsight as much as people at the time probably looked at it as kind of crazy it just following the history of how real estate goes and how it cycles it really wasn't right and of course it looks maybe smart now i mean seems stupid at the time but what would have caused it to look naive and stupid would be you got to be kidding me right this crisis is going on but then crisis is never you know they don't keep sustained crisis over time so look i do think timing matters but assuming someone has done the work and they've said i really believe i can penetrate this market my best advice is to formulate that plan do as much thoughtful work as you can to be prepared in other words even as i look back maybe a couple of things i would have done a little bit differently i probably would have been a little bit more ready come January 4th 2009 had i had i known better i might have had already my first private placement memorandum in the works and ready to go to market right we can all look back and say i would have could have should have done this but spending time to have a really well laid out plan and then literally take the very next step what i think happens and almost happened to me if i'm totally honest were it not for a very significant mentor of mine we might not be sitting here today because what i realized on literally like january 5th <laughs> a day after the corporation was formed is no one actually thinks this is a good idea i literally spent the next i don't know 90 or 120 days out in the marketplace in various capacities talking to capital 30 seconds in i had some sense of they're literally now just patronizing me because i bought them a cup of coffee and think i'm crazy to people that literally just said hey i just don't see it and you know see me in 3 years and and it served to demoralize me a little bit and in fact if i'm really honest in early april of that year i was at a point where i'm beginning to rethink have i am i just too early and were it not for a very significant mentor in my life that probably gave me a you know kind of verbally a kick in the behind and he simply said i don't remember you having x dollars of capital by april of this year a part of your business plan i don't remember you having a loan closed this time in your business plan a key thing in fact i don't remember almost any significant meaningful milestones in the first 6 months because when you were thinking about this you thought it would take some time. So really welcome to being an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. Do the very next thing that you need to do and then ask me what that was and marshal every resource within your network to see where you can find help. And and had it not been for being motivated and probably irritated by that conversation literally the next week 
I was introduced to Robert Hadley, who I didn't know from Adam. And three weeks later, we closed our very first transaction, which was not insignificant. It was a $5 million capital need and the rest, you know, kind of becomes history. So be prepared, be ready for adversity, use it as, as much as you can to keep your mental framework. I am doing this and know that there will be doubters and I'm just going to take the next critical step in the business plan because really thinking beyond that can get a bit overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Right. You just do the very next thing. Yeah. I think the, you've had some great points there. Obviously, optimism certainly is an important factor in, in whether or not you stay in the game. Right. You had certainly, uh, you know, situations where you had to double, you know, double guessing yourself, right? Second guessing yourself to see whether am I doing it the right thing without having the, the business coach or consultant, whoever you had that pushing you forward to say, hey, you know, you just need to keep moving. So optimism, having a plan. That certainly having some really good people who can keep you accountable is important. Are there any other characteristics that set you up for success as an entrepreneur that you've seen to uh, look for, especially when you're trying to hire and find partners that you have or, or you should, as a founder, you should have. I think two things, be open, be always open. And again, I'm kind of more wired this way. So it was maybe easier for me, you know, sometimes I've come across entrepreneurs invested in businesses, even where they're really rigid around, it kind of has to be this way. Mm-hmm. And so being flexible, whatever thinking got you to that point that caused you to think that this was a great idea, particularly if it's kind of plowing new ground, there are all sorts of other ways, right? Probably to get things done. So be open to what fate, karma, whatever you want to call it may bring your way. I mean, again, they go back to this opportunity and what has become just one of the most cherished relationships in my life with Mr. Hadley that literally came as a result of why don't you have, I've got a real estate guy I should introduce you to. And at the time, I, again, I'm in a little bit of a negative mindset, like thinking I'm too early and literally contemplating what would I do if I'm not doing this? But I agreed to take the meeting and literally, you know, it was a 45 minute visit at Starbucks. Next day, we're on site at a project and literally two weeks later, we're closing our first transaction. That doesn't happen if there's not an openness to, hey, I'm open to whatever. Here's my plan, but I'm open to there might be a different way to skin this cat. I've had most of the most significant things actually that have happened to the business have been planned in the sense that we know we need capital. As an example, we know we need investors. I never would have guessed ever would have guessed that the things that happened, like, how did that happen? I never would have envisioned that, let alone been open to it. But because we tend to have kind of an open aperture to, there might be a different way to do this. And I'm going to take kind of all comers within reason you know, has been, a really key thing. The other thing that I would say is as a founder is there are various times when in the business that the business needs different skills. I served as the company's CEO from its founding to January, 2020. One of my other business partners, Rob Trent has been CEO from that time. I have always operated under the pretense that this business and what it wants to accomplish goes way beyond me. I don't really have an ego about any particular, frankly, any particular role in in the business beyond obviously being its 
founder and now chairman and deeply involved day to day because I love the business. I have seen and again been involved in other businesses where that ego gets in the way. I have to be the guy or I have to be the gal. Again, I'm a little bit wired this way naturally. So it wasn't like it was a massive undertaking for me to contemplate it. It was the right move for the business for the season that it needed it. And that season may change again, right? And so having really good partnerships, if you're in a partnership, where there's really good understanding of what everybody contributes to the business and where their highest and best use is and seeing how much you can keep them in that role. And so, but it starts with an understanding that the business is bigger than the individual. Mm -hmm. So obviously, you know, as an entrepreneur, as a founder, you have to balance the concept of stability for the business, right? And at the same time, you don't want to be stagnating. You have to be doing innovation and coming up with new ideas on how to, how to improve, how to go to market with new product offering and things like that. How do you as a founder balance that act? Because obviously you've been able to successfully do that real well, not just, you know, lending is the business, but that's not the only thing you're doing. You're actually expanding your product offering and trying to figure out not to be the cheapest guy in the lending business for building, right. but you're actually expanding the service offering in terms of how you add more value to your borrowers sure. to make sure that they find you as the most, the perfect go-to partner for finding money to build, right? So how do you yeah. balance that innovation versus just stability? Yeah, so it starts with kind of our perspective on the business, Sam. So our perspective on the, look, this is an age old industry, right? We're not saving lives or flying rockets to space and landing them on drone ships, right? It, it, this is finance. And one of the realities of finance, despite the fact that in the very near term, we seem to have some advantage because of our focus, uh, not only our product focus, which is a little unique in the private lending space, but then our scale, right? So those two things are giving us some near-term advantages, but let's face it, you can't patent a loan product, right? If, if it's a profitable business and it's a business people are attracted to, it ultimately gets commoditized and so how do you maintain your advantage? We have been very clear on that reality since the day we started the business, frankly, or shortly thereafter. The other thing that we believe in is that our responsibility to ourselves, our families, our employees, our investors, that we focus on enterprise value, right? So things that accrete to enterprise value are things that are customer repetition and revenue over time can be one of those things, innovative and or unique offerings, technology, you know, et cetera. So as we think about it, one of the things that adds to enterprise value are some of the core tenets of the business. We service everything that we originate. That very, very much differentiates us in the market. To make a commitment to do that, you've made a scale, you've made a massive investment in technology, either your own or customize somebody else's, and you've built all the process procedure and et cetera that goes with that, right? Now that will differentiate maybe a little bit with your clients. I mean, one thing that's true about home builder finance and the reason I chose it and love it is it's very much a wash, rinse, repeat business, right? There's very few industries that are legal that I can think of where I sell you my product, you actually give it back to me with my margin and usually come back the very next day if you haven't already and, and buy it again and buy more, right? And it's just the nature of the way that, that real estate is financed, you know, in our country and probably everywhere in the world for that matter. 
And so we've always had our eye on let's differentiate ourselves with our focus. Let's really stay in our swim lane. We are really, really clear as is everybody in our organization. We really have one client and that is a regional non-publicly traded home builder. Everything we do can be also a boutique multifamily builder because they fit our product in almost all regards. That is our customer. And we have a mission, which is to be the builder's most valued relationship. So if you have that focus and you have that mission, then every decision that we make should be filtered through that, right? So when things come along and we get distracted, just like every entrepreneur, because what's true about entrepreneurs, you know, a silver squirrel or whatever, a squirrel runs and then we look out at it, right? That might be interesting to chase. And we've done, we've contemplated things before, like should we be in the fix and flip lending business? It's not all that different, you know, from construction loans. Should we be in the fill in the blank? And I'm proud of the fact that we've been really disciplined to filter it through that mission. Does this support our mission of being the builder's most valued relationship? Say, well, most builders don't do fix and flip loans. So, and frankly, we're not very good at it because it has a much faster cycle time than a construction loan. And we usually make, not always, usually we've distracted ourselves a time or two, but usually make the decision to stay in that swim lane. But even with all that said, finance products tend to get commoditized. The more profitable they are, the faster they get commoditized, right? And so we've looked for ways to solve problems that are materially important to builders that we could add to our platform that are still consistent with our mission vision and that would add enterprise value. We made at least one, and I think even the three of us individually have probably made a handful of investments in what I would call prop tech or con tech, construction technology, property technology, to be up close to a business, to watch how it operates and say, could this be something that's accretive to our builders? For the most part, and there's some, some of these investors are wonderful platform. We just realized over time, that's not directly applicable to what our builder needs. But we found one in the spring of 2021 that we ultimately acquired. And it's called Custom Home AI BIMQUO. And I won't go with Travis Dodge is the entrepreneur. Travis is now our chief technology officer, a wonderful entrepreneur, very, very smart individual, comes from a construction background, which is to say his family built homes, then went to school, played football in college, and then graduated. And I think has a civil and maybe a mechanical engineering, but in an engineering mind frame, but is a problem solver and realized in working with, for one of the big OEM construction suppliers, like, wow, this is construction residential in particular is really frankly, is unorganized, right? Imagine if you and I think Tesla will build a million and a half cars this year, the nation will build about a million and a half residential and multifamily units this year. The difference is Elon Musk gets to do it all in a factory and they all kind of look the same. There's only three models. Houses at different jurisdictions, different climates, different geotechnology, different sizes, different sub base. There's 80 subs and suppliers on every home and they range from your independently owned plumber that has two guys all the way to global suppliers and materials. And somehow you got to organize all that together. It is ripe for disruption around how products are procured, 
It is ripe for disruption with technology, including artificial intelligence, for how plans are designed and done. So in really basic summary, what Custom Home AI and BIMQuote, which are really one extension of the same platform, gives our customers the ability to rapidly innovate new product. I would say it takes a cycle time of designing a basic new plan. You know, you say, hey, I've been building Northwest Craftsman, I now wanna build modern. So I'm gonna go to my architect. Keep in mind, this might still just be a three bedroom, two bath house, right? Outside of the exterior and the angles of how it looks, you're still three bedrooms, two baths. There's only so much you can do inside that space, right? And, and yet you'll spend, you know, 60 days with an architect to draft it up. It will send back your red line, red line, red line. You might be 90 days and 10 to $20,000 to get a single plan done. Then an engineer or some or a project manager needs to sit down and literally count all of the products. How many two by sixes? How many sheets of OSB? How many roofing squares? How many yards of concrete? Then they put that on a form and they send that out to bid. Now the, now the subcontractor bids it, bids material and labor. This technology contains all of that inside of the technology. In a matter of three to five days, we can take a 14, 15 set of plans, have them fully rendered in a 3D environment and literally explode the house. If you imagine, if you've ever bought like a lawnmower and looked at the manual, which since we're guys, we probably never have, but I've been told that these exist. The middle of the document has an exploded view of the lawnmower and it's all the parts, right? So if the spark plug goes bad or the wheel breaks you and there's a little skew in the part, right? Envision this for a house, literally on screen, it blows up the house and it says, you need 352 by sixes, 75 sheets of OSB, 27 roofing squares, and does all of the quantity takeoffs instantly so that you can get those out to bid. And we are now linked with a national purchasing platform that we've contracted where we guarantee that they are gonna get top five public home builder pricing. So literally inside of our system, they can build the house from a plan set they can fully budget and have it quantified by the technology. Yes, you have the right number of two by sixes. They can make changes real time and have all those things change. And they can order, technically they can order almost the entire house through the platform. And they're gonna save probably conservatively 10 to 15% of what they would pay otherwise using their own network. So we see it as a, our vision for the future, Sam, is that our financing, why it is our calling card, is just part of engagement with us, right? We will never be priced like a bank because we'll never be a depository. Not because we don't like banks or don't think they serve a role, but we are in part in the condition in the housing market nationally that we're in because of the regulatory framework that governs how banks operate. There needs to be a scaled private opportunity for home builders and we think we're a part of that solution. But we envision them coming into our platform and we don't cram this down. If they wanna use the tech, they can use the tech. They could engage us just for the financing, that's just fine. Our idea is we keep layering on value that's right in their swim lane makes their job easier, makes it more affordable. If it makes it more affordable for them, it makes it safer for us, right? Because we're lending on risk. If the cost is a million dollars and I'm lending whatever, 
80% of that, but the cost is 900,000 and I'm lending 80% of that, they've improved their margin, I've reduced my loan and everybody you know, wins. So we envision a day where they'll come in, they'll engage in our platform, they'll order up their next set of financing on their next lots, they'll be looking at their invoicing, they'll be ordering their draws, they might be rendering a new plan, they might be ordering materials. So we really see it ultimately as a platform solution of engagement with us that is heavily layered with technology that's assisting along the way, both them and us. Yeah, I think you know some a couple of key things that you mentioned is your your company vision really determines everything that you're doing, right? Because you want to be that your go-to partner for the builders uh, for everything, starting from finance all the way to the you know the production of the pro project, right? Like the actual doing of the construction and making exactly. their life easier in the process. Because these guys are with a pickup truck and a binder is trying to do everything on their own, right? They need to be able to do that. And obviously, you do have national builders and much larger. Uh, borrowers, uh, but I'm just saying in general, right? Your builders don't have a lot of time. They're operating out of a pickup truck and they need to make their life easier. And I love the way how you're envisioning making, you know, adding more value to them by creating technology and solution that is a value add at the end of the day and making them be more efficient and more profitable and giving them better visibility into their own numbers. Because a lot of times they're probably spending, you know, calculating off of somebody else's estimate that gave back and, you know, doing some mental math. Oh yeah, I'm going to make money. Let's just do a 20% markup on that one. Oh, totally. It's You're really absolutely right. Right. Yeah. Like that, it's crazy. And the funny thing you mentioned about the, uh, the lawnmower, because I do always say the same thing, like Tim Allen said, like true men don't need instructions, right? We don't, right. Need, <laughs> we don't need any instructions. Right. We, we'll figure it out. Or so, any help. Yeah, exactly. Well, obviously, you know, you touched earlier that you talked about you changed your role from a CEO to become a chairman. Uh, you obviously saw leadership in your company that was capable of doing something that you couldn't fill that role, right? And you saw a, a different, better use of your skills and your vision, yeah. right? So what motivates you? What inspires you? Because after a while you do this for 15 years, right? There comes a point like, you know, this is just a routine. You need a challenge. Like what's that drive? Yeah. What keeps you going even where you are today? Yeah. So, you know, again, I continue to be, you know, when I'm in the Seattle area, which we are most of the year, I'm down on the floor with our team in Piala and uh, probably there at least three, if not four days, you know, a week. I pick up various projects and will lead initiatives within the organization based on what we assess as owners, you know, our places. So a lot of that time today, and we're all pretty engaged in this as owners, but our capital markets function is something that we've brought in-house in the last year. We have a really skilled team, the inclusive of a structured finance lawyer, as well as a co-president now of the company that runs capital markets. So they are daily engaged with our capital partners, existing and new, and filling the funnel with more capital because fuel to our business is new capital. And we're always growing or, you know, knock on wood, we've historically been growing. So as soon as we onboard, you know, 250 to 500 million in a new partner, we're immediately on to the next because we know we'll consume that capital in the next couple of months and need more. Um, so heavily invested there, heavily invested in working with our, alongside our, my partner and CEO, Rob, uh, working with our key leadership team. So we're engaged multiple times a week with various groups that kind of are our sweet C-suite outside the two of us. We have two co-presidents, we have a chief revenue officer, we have a CTO, and we're building bench strength kind of laterally 
in the organization preparing for not where we are today, which of course we already need to be prepared for, but where we see the business, you know, 12, 18, 24 months from now. Because again, we are keen on within reason investing into this is where we're going. Let's not wait till we get there to try to find the right person. And depending on what position you're talking about, those can be long processes, right? To get. And then again, I'll, I'll pick up specific projects around loan products and I directly manage well up until just recently our, the sales end of the organization, as well as anything that we call in our special assets group. So project related stuff keeps me really engaged day to day in the business, high level engagement with specifically Rob Trent, our CEO and our C-suite of executives happens every day, every week. But to your question of what really motivates me, what really motivates me is seeing what we're capable of. Our, our vision is the right vision. And I think our mission and the significance, I mean, I don't have some altruistic goal, like we're going to rescue the world from the banking sector. Because again, that, that starts with some assumptions I'm saying to me, and it really isn't. It's just the regulated, when we all have our money at an institution and it's federally insured, there should be tight regulation as to how they lend that. We are just coming out of a season that I actually think will now last another couple of years where we got this regional bank shock 90 days, 120 days ago. That certainly wasn't on my radar. I had no idea that they had the ability and were susceptible to mismatching the term and yield of an investment with near-term deposit run risk, right? I'm not sure they were even fully aware, right? 10 years ago, you would not have had a run on a bank like you did on SVB, which happened literally in a weekend because of these. Right. Jump on Twitter. Everyone's doing it. Suck 40, 50 billion dollars out of the bank. Well, how do you meet those deposits if you don't have them? You sell assets when your assets are three percent mortgages that don't mature for another 26 years. You got to sell them at a discount to meet the yield. Cost them two billion dollars. And a week later, that bank's out of business. Right. And so banks should be regulated. I think they'll overdo it most likely and probably further constrain our regional banks. And so when I say our vision is right, we need in this nation to have a very robust, scaled, not just builders capital, total marketplace. Because if we aren't and we aren't careful and national home builders, which again, I don't have anything against, they're just not our customer. We're gonna find ourselves in a nation of five massive public builders and our choices, Sam, when we go out to a community to buy a house is going to be one of 14 different plan types from four different national builders, right? And God bless them. They feel a massive need of housing in this market, but thank goodness for regional, bespoke, unique build, you know, maybe it takes a little longer, maybe it's a little bit more expensive, but your most extraordinary housing from the efficient and small and and appropriate for first timers all the way up to your luxury product. There's a really important sector there built by our regional builders and we need to support them. Yeah, I hate seeing those cookie cutter homes, to be honest, because we yeah. did some research in Texas looking for houses. I mean, it's three houses, three design, they all look the same, right? It's just not, right. even, it's not even fun. And we all talk about, you know, Monopoly. And like you said, there's a couple of major players in the market that builds all the homes. 
and they control the entire marketplace. And where you have these smaller builders, they don't have the capitals, they don't have access to the land, and there's so much you know need for new construction right. to happen. And there are restrictions on how they can even borrow, which makes exactly. it even difficult for them to do it. Yeah, and so the land acquisition at that pipeline and the difficulty finance it, and then the lack of financing at scale on what they call the horizontal and the vertical side, that is the issue, right? <laughs> There's not enough of it, but when you're Lennar or DR Hornin, again, I mean, good for them. That really, really well-run companies, they are king for a day because they don't have those same issues. I'm not saying they don't have issues. Financing isn't one of them. Yeah, in Schaumburg, uh, in, uh, where I live, not too far from there, they have a corporate offices for all of them. Like ten, I think it's uh, right. Tall Brothers, Lennar, and whatever, TJ Horton, all of those guys, they have their big offices there, massive offices. buildings, yeah. because they're obviously, you know, have access and, and they have construction going on in the area. I have a last question here. Obviously, yeah. we're entrepreneurs, are builders, you know, we create things from ground up. So if you, if everything was taken away from you today, what would you do to build it back better? If everything was taken away, be a little bit more specific. When you, when you say everything You, you actually, obviously 15 years of building this, right? You've successfully have uh, seen the ups and downs and had, you know, a strategy on how to overcome obstacles that you didn't even expect, uh, right? And you've been able to build and build, but entrepreneurs often say like, Hey, everything could be taken away, but my knowledge, my experience cannot be taken away. I can rebuild this back bigger and better. It doesn't yeah. matter what, what comes my way, right? What action items would you take tomorrow if you had to rebuild this? Well, if I had to, if that literally happened uh, tomorrow, the first thing that I would uh, be checking on is making sure both my business partners were in my same camp. That has been the mix of what the three of us bring to the table. I think as part of our, if we have a superpower as an organization, it is the collective of the three of us. We're very, very different. And look, tactically, in terms of what are the steps of what you need, if it was all taken away from me tomorrow, but I still had the memory and knowledge of what we had done, a lot of work, but probably would be cheaper and much faster, right? Because I would already know what the end in mind looks like. And a lot of the decisions that would be made would be the same conclusive decisions that we made some we had to get to iteratively, I would avoid all that iteration, right? Go right to would absolutely own our own technology from start to finish, would know exactly how to go to capital markets. And again, assuming I could leverage the history that we had in the past as track record, would know exactly how to capitalize the business, would know what ratio of kind of on balance sheet and off balance sheet I want would know how much capital if I didn't have it, because presumably I've lost it to bring in equity to support it. So that stuff, while a lot of work and would take probably more time than most entrepreneurs always underestimate the time a little bit, uh, would know exactly how to do that. What would be really difficult to replace uh, would, be, would be, again, the collective kind of experience and knowledge that the three of us, and look, there are more, there are a lot of other people in that, that I would want to hopefully would look around me and say, okay, we're all in the same boat. Let's go do this, you know, again. Yeah. So that's how I would answer that. The first thing I would be uh, searching for was to find out if my two shipmates were also in the same position. Yeah. I just finished reading the book, Ben Hardy's book by who, not how uh, yeah. they, they talked about like, even for Michael Jordan, it wasn't about just him playing the game to win, he had to have few teammates that actually can get him to win. It's always about that, you know, that top talent that's, you know, the A players that makes or 
breaks the business, right? You got to have that right team as part of the game. And having them aligned and really being leaders, <laughs> right? We actually were finding ourselves talking about this a lot this week. We have at multiple times along the business realized that, and I use this phrase, that we, we need a bigger boat, <laughs> right? We need a different boat. And I don't mean different by like people. And again, this is something that both Robert Hadley and specifically Rob Trent believe to their core. When we found ourselves, Sam, in 2017, kind of capped out at 350 million. And by the way, probably, I don't know that anybody was keeping track, but if you stack ranked us to our competitors, we, we probably still were in the, towards the top of that heap, right? There was just no significant capital chasing the business. So you were limited to what, you know, you could do, but even to get to that point, we had six or we had five private placements, 300 investors. That was this massive thing that really we didn't want to manage, not because we didn't like it, but it would be analogous to you and I saying, Hey, we're going to go create the best offshore diving experience for people. So we buy our boat, we get our tanks, we get all geared up. And then we realize right before we're launched, someone's like, Hey, you're all set. But just to let you know, nobody makes oxygen tanks. <laughs> and we're like, what are you talking about? We have a dive boat. And so then you and I have to figure out how to go make dive tanks. Well, yes, it's critical if you want to have an offshore dive service, but we really don't want to be in the making of air tank business, right? Mm -hmm. So that was a little analogous to where we were. We had to break that. We had to risk it to kind of go to the next level. When we got from, you know, 500 million to $2 billion early on in that process, we realized that the, the mechanics of how we move loans through the system was too cumbersome. We needed to break it. And really we ended up kind of flipping the script and doing stuff we would do at the end at the start. That's taken us from call it 500 million in originations to $3 billion in originations. Well, guess what? Here we sit today. Again, we'll do $4 billion this year, five plus next year. We're probably okay for now in that, but at our scale today, we are back to kind of where we were in 2017. We need to rethink how we're doing things. We need to shuffle the chess pieces on the board a little bit. Some of that's personnel. We just recently active, asked a very key leader in our organization to go do something entirely different. Well, it's still in the same vein, it's on the sales end of the business, but to go attack a really specific initiative that we're after that we think can add substantial scale on the origination front. It's uncomfortable. People doubt it and they get fearful and they wonder where they sit, but we've been very open to doing that, knowing that if we don't, we cannot continue to do the things the same way that we've done and expect a 5X result, right? You have to be willing to break them. And you gotta do that kind of carefully, right? You can't be nonchalant with people's career, you have to listen and make sure you want them engaged. But I think a key attribute to making all of that work is having leadership within the organization. And we want debate, right? When people sit down and like, I think that is a horrible idea. And here's why I think it's horrible or say, Hey, Kurt and Rob, I'm just not seeing this. Can you help me see this? Cause this is what I fear might happen. But then once a decision is made, that is the messaging that's carried to the team. We will deal with whatever the implication is, even if we've made a mistake. 
and then we'll live up, we'll take accountability, right, for that. But you cannot have waffling leadership when you're trying to do that kind of thing. You've got to get set and everybody's got to know that this is just the direction we're heading. Whatever comes our way, we're kind of locked in arm in arm because everyone's looking at us to make sure it feels okay. And guess what? With change, the next 90 days is not going to feel very good. We're going to make mistakes. People are going to be like, where am I supposed to be on the playing field? That's normal. That's normal as you institute a new playbook. So anyway. Yeah. I mean, obviously, like you said, leadership is so important, not just in private sector, in business world, but obviously in government and, and running countries as well. And like you said, you need A players. If you have to rebuild it from scratch, you have to have some really key players in your team that can actually help you to win the game. It's not a single player sport. So Kurt, I can sit here and talk to you for hours. I certainly enjoyed our conversation. A lot of wealth of information in terms of how you've been able to build a company up from the ground up and overcome so many obstacles that were completely outside of your control and to successfully sit here today talking about accomplishments you have and the aspiration of where you're trying to take the company next. So thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with our audience. Yeah, Sam, thank you. It's been my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. Awesome. This episode of Coffee with Closers is brought to you by One IMS, a leading digital marketing agency helping businesses win new customers. To request a free marketing ROI audit, please visit oneims.com. If you enjoyed this video, please share it. To make sure you never miss an episode, please subscribe.